right, well, today we will be covering chapter 4 in our book, The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer. This is the final full chapter of the book, um, and then next week, Pastor Fry will be covering the conclusion of the book. So there's a, a conclusion section that he'll be walking through with some really good points, sort of taking uh, what we've learned in the lesson and applying the, um, what we've seen there. Um, you know, so, but today we will be in the fourth and final chapter of the main part of the book. And fittingly, in this final chapter of the book, we find ourselves in the final book of the Bible. We'll be spending our time looking uh, specifically at Revelation chapters 12 and 20. And the author will lead us through a study of the dragon found there in Revelation chapters 12 and 20. We'll look at a description of the dragon and specifically what the dragon does, the actions he takes in those chapters. In our study, we've been walking through this narrative of the serpent and the serpent slayer, starting at the beginning of the story, which was in Genesis chapter 3. If you recall, that's where we started out in the Garden of Eden, where we see the serpent deceiving Eve. We see our first parents, Adam and Eve, falling into sin, disobeying God. And then we see a promise, right? We see a number of curses put on the serpent, Adam and Eve, but we see also promises. We see a promise that the offspring of the woman would bruise the head of the offspring of the serpent, and that the offspring of the serpent would bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman. We also discussed specific actions that Satan as the serpent took in deceiving our first parents there in Genesis chapter 3. Then we followed along with the story and we looked at a number of examples where we see Satan and his offspring, the offspring of the serpent, actively persecuting the people of God or the offspring of the woman fulfilling that prophecy that we saw in Genesis chapter 3, that the serpent and the woman would be at enmity with one another, right? And that the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent would be at enmity with one another. We see that play out throughout Scripture. This continued all the way up until we saw the ultimate offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, come and crush the head of the serpent, Satan, at the cross, we see there Satan bruising Jesus' heel, you know, uh, inflicting injury on Jesus at the cross, but Jesus ultimately crushing the head of the serpent. Jesus has the victory on the cross. And so we see the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy, but at the same time, throughout Scripture, we've seen um, also the offspring of the woman and offspring of the serpent more generally, the people of God, offspring of the woman, and uh, and all of those of the devil, the children of the devil, as we talked about last week, persecuting them. And that continues up through the New Testament. It continues on until today. And so we find ourselves involved as characters in this story. Uh, if we belong to Christ, we know that we are among the offspring of the woman. And then we also know that those who seek to persecute God's people are the offspring of the serpent. So in this grand narrative of the serpent, Satan, and the serpent slayer, Jesus Christ, 
we find ourselves as those who are ultimately saved by Jesus from Satan, from our sin, and from the power of sin and death. And it's here at the end of the book, at the end of the Bible, that we reach our finale, where we see a picture of the ongoing war between the evil serpent Satan and his offspring on the one hand, and on the other, Jesus Christ and his people, the offspring of the woman. We see that playing out in Revelation chapter 12. Then when we get to chapter 20, we'll see the final battle between Satan and his followers and Christ and his followers, and we'll see the ultimate fate of the serpent of Satan and his offspring. So if you recall, in the first chapter of the book, what Nasalee had done for us was walked through Genesis chapter 3. So in the first chapter, he started at the beginning of the story, the beginning of the narrative, and he looked specifically at Genesis chapter 3, and he gave us 12 notable truths about the serpent, the deceptive serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Here in the last chapter, he goes to the end of the story in Revelation chapters 12 and 20, and here he gives us 13 notable truths about the dragon that is found in, Genesis, or in Revelation chapters 12 and 20. So he's mirroring what he's done at the beginning of the story, now doing the same thing at the end of the story. And we'll walk through those 13 truths that Nasily gives us. I've got them listed here on the slide, but we'll go through them one by one. We note that Satan appears at the beginning of this story, as I mentioned, as a deceptive snake. Satan appears at the end of the story <clears throat> as a devouring dragon. And at the beginning of the story, we saw Satan's ultimate defeat prophesied, whereas here at the end of the story, we will see it completed. Ultimately, Revelations chapters 12 and 20 are a summary of the events foretold in Genesis chapter 3. This is the point that Nasali is going to help us make as we walk through here. Um, recall from Genesis chapter 3, you know, God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We'll see that play out here in these chapters that we walk through. And we will follow this outline that Nasali's provided because it's helpful. He essentially takes us through Revelation chapter 12 and then the beginning of chapter 20 sort of, you know, divides it up into shorter passages and makes these points about what we're seeing. So the first truth about the dragon in Revelation chapter 12 is that he is the ancient serpent. We'll read a few verses here uh, that point this out. So in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we read, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And in verse 10, The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Then when we skip ahead to chapter 20, we read in verse 2 there something similar. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Here is where we make that connection initially between Genesis and Revelation. Here at the start of, of chapter 12. Satan is the great dragon described in Revelation, but he's also referred to as that ancient serpent. 
And we can look at all the various labels that we see applied to him here. I listed those out, Nasily lists them in the book. Uh, you know, there's six different labels he mentions that are applied here to, to Satan. He's referred to as the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver, and the accuser of our brothers. And while some have tried to argue that the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 is not in fact Satan because the passage there in Genesis chapter 3 does not specifically name the serpent as Satan, the descriptions we have of Satan, including those here in these verses, as well as elsewhere in Revelation and elsewhere in Scripture, certainly support that the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 is indeed Satan. He's described here as that ancient serpent. He's a deceiver, just as we saw the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 was a deceiver. He deceived Eve with his cunning. He's described as the accuser of our brothers, which is consistent with what we saw in Genesis chapter 3 again, where we saw that the serpent was um, at, put at enmity with the woman, that the serpent's offspring would be at enmity with her offspring. And as we continue to walk through these descriptions of Satan in Revelation, uh, we certainly see Satan very much at enmity with the woman and her offspring. And what we'll see is continually, um, you know, the descriptions we see of Satan here support that he would be the, the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. The next point that Nasley makes is that the dragon is a murderer. Uh, while there are additional texts we will look at in these chapters that clearly depict the dragon as a murderer, Nasley points specifically to the reference uh, of the dragon being a great red dragon, you know, that color red, as we see in uh, verse 3 of chapter 12, where it says, And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon. Uh, the author bases this on the fact that when we see the color red elsewhere in Revelation, that it tends to be associated with murder. Uh, he gives the example from Revelation chapter 6 4 of the red horse. You know, we read there, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people could slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Um, he also gives another example from Revelation uh, chapter 17 of the great prostitute who is clothed in purple and scarlet, red, and is described as being drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, given that Revelation is apocalyptic literature and the pictures we see within it are very symbolic, there are naturally differences in interpretation. Uh, not every commentator or uh, you know, person looking at Genesis comes to the same conclusion that red necessarily means murder here. But we, we certainly can clearly see that the dragon is murderous in these chapters as we're going to read through what the dragon is doing, his attempts to devour the male child, uh, his attempts to persecute and, and, um, and murder the woman and her offspring. So, um, you know, I think, you, you know, Nasley makes a good point looking at the color of the dragon, but even then, if you don't take that necessarily to be indicative that the dragon's a murderer, he's still a murderer. We'll, we'll see that as we look through the, the rest of these chapters. Uh, he also makes the point that the dragon is powerful. And again here, he's um, interpreting a bit. You know, he refers to verse 3 
where it says, And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, as we read before, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. So he draws that conclusion, stating that the ten horns represent great power and ruling authority, while the seven diadems represent power extending over all of the earth, with that number seven representing the, the power extending over all of the earth. Now, again, there's differences in, terp- in interpretation, but we've seen this language used before. We've seen it used elsewhere. We see it used in Daniel and, and other areas where we have apocalyptic literature. And the general consensus tends to be that, yes, the, the ten horns, uh, you know, in other places we've seen it represent ten kings, uh, but here in particular uh, appears to represent his great power, right? Great power over the nations, um, great influence over the nations. And then, uh, you know, as we see, again, as we continue reading through the chapters, we see that supported by everything else that we, that's coming in Revelation chapter 12 and 20. The next truth that we see regarding the dragon is that he plans to devour the Messiah. So let's read, again, zooming out a bit now, we've already read some of this, but we'll zoom out a bit and read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12 in Revelation. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So here we have a reference to a male child, the offspring of the woman. And he's described as one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And the child here is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So how do we know this? Well, in addition to identifying Jesus as the offspring of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, you know, the ultimate offspring of the woman there, uh, and here in Revelation chapter 12, we see this description of ruling the nations with a rod of iron used to describe Jesus elsewhere. In Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, we read, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we see there, a prophecy about the Messiah to come and that he would rule over the nations and break them with a rod of iron. But we don't even have to leave the book of Revelation to see references to Jesus as ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Think about that great passage that we read in Revelation 19 about Jesus' coming uh, triumph, his triumphant victory, and we'll actually be reading that today as one of our passages in Uh, in our worship service. Uh, So we'll get to read the whole thing there. But just looking at verses 11 through 15, we read, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, 
and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Again, we see this description of Jesus as ruling the nations with a rod of iron. And so we see at the beginning of chapter 12, this male child who would rule the nations with a rod of iron is Jesus Christ. And Satan is seeking to devour him. This harkens back to one of the examples that we talked about last week of the murderous dragon, right? You think about the example of King Herod, and we talked about last week how he initially tried to deceive the wise men into giving away Jesus' location. Uh, when that didn't work, he resorted to murdering all of the Jewish male children two years old and younger. Um, so we see there that uh, you know this is the strategy that Satan had. He, he sought to destroy the offspring of the woman before that offspring could come and crush his head. Which brings us to our next point, that the dragon fails to devour the Messiah. Right? He's unsuccessful in devouring the child of the woman because, as we read in verse 5, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So we see this in multiple instances. You could, you could look at the example of King Herod as you know, Satan attempting to murder the Messiah and failing. God tells Joseph to take his family into Egypt and wait there until he's told to return so that Jesus won't be murdered. But ultimately what this is talking about is Jesus' escape from Satan and victory over Satan at the cross, right? Because we see that the child is caught up to God and to his throne. Satan at the cross had hoped to defeat Jesus. Instead, Jesus is resurrected from the dead and raised to be with God at his throne, sitting at his right hand. And so, again, Satan fails in his attempt to devour the Messiah. Nasily actually draws an interesting comparison in the book. I, I put a quote in here from him. Uh, between, you know, he's drawing a contrast between Satan's success in destroying Adam and his failure in his attempt to devour the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He says in the book, The serpent defeated Adam under a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the new and greater Adam defeats the serpent on a tree, a cross for executing criminals. Next, we see that the dragon and his angels get thrown down to earth. So as we continue reading in that passage, we pick up in verse 7, and we read, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels, fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. 
Nasily states in the book, he posits the question, when did Satan get thrown down the earth? Well, it happened when the Son of God became human, lived in a perfectly righteous way, sacrificially died for sinners and rose again. That triumph decisively defeated Satan. This naturally follows what we read in verse 5 previously, where we saw that Satan was unsuccessful in devouring the child Jesus and that Jesus was caught up to God and his throne. As it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through death, Jesus destroys the one who has the power of death, the devil. This is shown in our passage from Revelation as we see Satan defeated and Satan and his angels being thrown down to the earth. The next point that the author makes is that the dragon is conquered on the basis of the blood of the lamb and the word of the saint's testimony. So here he turns to verses 11 through 12, the beginning of verse 12, and he points out how Satan was defeated. So let's read there in those verses. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. We see here two different things mentioned about how Satan is defeated. One being the blood of the Lamb, and two is the word of their testimony. Now, the blood of the Lamb is pretty clear. We all understand what that is. That's Christ's blood. That's his giving of himself as the Lamb of God, without blemish, perfectly righteous on the cross, and in doing so, atoning for the sin of his people and defeating Satan, as we read in Hebrews chapter 2, defeating death and the one who has the power over death, the devil. So Christ ultimately, with his sacrifice on the cross, defeats Satan. That's the primary means by which Satan is defeated. However, there's a secondary means mentioned there, and that is the word of their testimony. And that's taken here to mean the courageous and faithful spread of the gospel by the followers of Christ. Indeed, we have a role to play in this. His, Christ's people are saved by his blood, and he does that through faith, by the working of the Holy Spirit, and regenerating those who were previously dead in their trespasses and sins. It's all a work of God, but he gives us a role to play. And our role is taking forward the gospel to those who are lost. And so that's what we see here, is that Satan is ultimately conquered by Christ, but the means Christ is using is the spread of his gospel to the ends of the earth. Then we see next that the dragon furiously persecutes God's people. So after having been defeated by Jesus already, we see the dragon Satan still alive, still fighting, and he turns his attention to God's people. He's failed to defeat Christ, so now he turns his focus to those who belong to Christ. God's people here we see represented by the woman 
and by the rest of her offspring. So let's continue reading here. Um, We'll go back and read a, a couple of the verses we've already covered, talking about the woman in particular, and then we'll continue on with our passage in verses 12 through 17, uh, seeing what comes next. So going back to verses 1 and 2, we read, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Then in verse 6, we read, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, and which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days or three and a half years if you're doing the math. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So here we see those prophecies that we had in Genesis chapter 3 coming to their fulfillment. We see that ancient serpent, Satan, He's at enmity with the woman, representing the people of God. The woman brings forth a male child, Jesus, the offspring of the woman, the ultimate offspring of the woman, who the dragon or serpent, Satan, tries to devour, bruising his heel in the process. However, Jesus escapes from Satan, and he defeats Satan, bruising his head. Then the dragon, Satan, continues to make war continues to be at enmity with the woman and the rest of her offspring, again, representing the people of God. After all, how do we see the offspring described here, the rest of the woman's offspring? They're, um, they're described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So again, here we see the serpent at enmity with the woman, the offspring of the serpent at enmity with her offspring. We see the people of God being persecuted, But the dragon cannot destroy God's people, praise the Lord. When we zoom in on verses 14 and 16 from the passage that we just read, Nasli reminds us that the dragon cannot destroy God's people. And why is that? Because God protects them. We read there, you know, kind of zooming in on what we just saw, the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. So we see God protecting the woman and her offspring in the the next couple of verses. We see God nourishing the woman, providing her with the nourishment that she needs. And we see this going on for a time and times and half a time. Remember that uh, denoting a time of three and a half, just like we'd seen those, those days previously where the woman was, was kept for uh, essentially three and a half years. In Revelation, if you recall, when we see these instances of three and a half, you know, it's half of seven, 
you know, the number of completion, and it typically refers to times of persecution. And so we see here that the woman is persecuted, but she's also protected. She's protected by God and nourished by God, given what she needs in order to persevere. And this is something that when we read it, we can draw great hope from, because we know that even though we may be persecuted in this life, that God's people will be persecuted in this life, that God never leaves us or abandons us to that persecution. He will always protect us, and he will give us that nourishment that we need. Whatever He knows what we need, and he always provides what we need. And so next we see that the dragon empowers the beast. So as we uh, turn to chapter 13, we see this beast introduced. Um, and we'll go ahead and read the first four verses of chapter 13, and then talk about that. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So Nasli makes a couple of good points here in the book. He points out that, on the one hand, this dragon-empowered beast represents Satan-empowered nations that persecute God's people. These can also be um, understood as the offspring of the serpent, right? At enmity with persecuting the offspring of the woman, the people of God. He also points out here that the dragon forms a counterfeit trinity consisting of the dragon himself, Satan, the first beast that we read about here, which rises out of the sea, these Satan-empowered nations, and then the second beast, which we read about later in chapter 13, which rises out of the earth, which is the false prophet, representing Satan-empowered religious institutions. So we see this unholy trinity, you know, putting itself up against God and calling the people to worship it. But soon we will see the fate of that unholy trinity. Next, we see that the dragon is bound for a thousand years. We read now, moving forward to chapter 20, as we get closer to the end of the story, uh, we read there in verses 1 through 3 of that chapter, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Here in this passage, we see Satan bound and unable to deceive the nations for a thousand years, but then released for a little while, a shorter time period. And we don't have time today in Sunday school to, to talk through all of the different uh, views on the thousand years and all of the different details of that. Um, we need a lot more time to really do that. Um, 
in a full and effective way. But if you're interested in it, we, we do have a good series of sermons preached on Revelation on sermon audio uh, from GFBC, and specifically on verses 1 through 3 here, talking about the millennium. So if that's something you're interested in, I would certainly uh, recommend you go check those out because it's given a lot more full and um, better treatment than we could do here today. Um, but what I'll say here, you know, what Nasley points out in the book is that, you know, putting all of that aside, um, what he points out is, you know, what's important in this passage is who has that binding power. You know, Satan does not have any power whatsoever to bind God, but God has all power to bind or loose Satan as he sees fit. And that's what we see here, is that God gives the command and Satan is bound. God gives the command and Satan is released. God is sovereign over all of this. He is in control and he is working all things together for his glory and for the good of those called according to his purpose. We have to keep that in mind when we look at these events in Revelation. Next we see that once the dragon is released, he attempts to deceive the nations. Remember, he was bound for a thousand years, unable to deceive the nations. Now he's released. What does he go do? He goes to deceive the nations. So as we continue reading in chapter 20, we skip down to verses 7 through 9. We see, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So here we see once again Satan deceiving the nations, and he's gathering them to battle against the people of God. So as we saw previously in that picture of Satan forming this unholy trinity with himself and the political and religious you know, uh, uh, institutions that are under his influence, uh, here in Revelation chapter 20, we see another picture of that same thing happening. We see Satan gathering these forces to come and to persecute and attempt to destroy the people of God. We see that people of God represented as the camp of the saints and the beloved city. This is God's people. Satan is relentless in his attempts to destroy those who would bear the image of God, those who would love and obey God. And he enlists his offspring. Remember, as we talked about, the offspring of the serpent. He lists the, enlists his offspring in order to help him to attempt to destroy this people of God. However, as we see as we continue reading, he's unsuccessful. As we continue reading in verses 9 and 10, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, those people who were attempting to to help Satan, the, the nations that had come together to war against God's people. They're consumed by fire. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So just as we saw before, God saves his people. He protects them from this destruction that would come their way at the hands of the serpent and his offspring. And just like that, we see 
<laughs> very quickly, our story of the serpent and the serpent slayer coming to a close. All of Satan's efforts to destroy the Messiah, to destroy the woman and her offspring, the people of God, ultimately result in his defeat and his eternal torment in the lake of fire. The evil serpent has been slain, and the serpent slayer reigns from his throne, united with the bride for whom he died. And so, in closing this chapter of the book, and closing our lesson today, I'll give Nasli the, the final word here, because I think he has a really good statement as he closes this out, this chapter. He says here, Never again will the dragon, that ancient serpent, accuse or deceive or persecute God's people. The dragon will consciously experience fiery torment forever. God will sovereignly and perfectly enforce justice, justice for which God's people now yearn and for which God's people will eternally praise God. Amen. All right, well, that uh, wraps up our...